person you're about to meet grew up in a world far away from heat and humidity. They grew up in Hungary, but came to learn of the territory in 1988 thanks to a children's book that was all about Cyclone Tracy, a tropical cyclone that brought Darwin to her knees on Christmas Day in 1974. It also happened to be the first ever book Dr. Bo Remini had read in English. This is another episode from Spun Stories, a live storytelling night in Australia's Northern Territory. My name's Jess Ong. The story starts in 1988, when I read my first ever book in the English language, and it was a story about Cyclone Tracy. And uh, I presume most people in this audience are from Darwin, so they all know about Cyclone Tracy, which is the most devastating storm that Darwin has faced in our modern history. And this book that I was reading, it had images and numbers, and the numbers showed that on, on Christmas Eve, 24th of December, 1974, Santa never arrived to Darwin. Now, that's a very special date for all of us Territorians, but it's a very special date for me because it is my birthday. I was born on that day in Hungary. When I read, the book, read this book, this children's story book, in English, I knew no English. I looked at the pictures, and the pictures were images of devastation. In fact, this children's storybook should have been (laughs) R-rated. So let me tell you how I got to that. So living in Hungary, a communist country, under the auspice of the Soviet Union, we were told that Hungary was the greatest country in the world. We, invent, we Hungarians, we invented everything from the biro pencil to the Rubik's Cube and even air. <laughs> and we were warned at high school, primary school, about the evils of the Western world and free thinking, and which could be you know, looked at like modern China. And then one day, my mother comes up to me, who's in the audience, and she said, you know, how would you like to go to Australia? And she said, don't answer, please think about this for a few days. So I thought about this carefully, and I reflected everything I learned in my Hungarian school education about Australia. So Australia was an island, the greatest mountain was Kosciuszko, the biggest river, the Murray Murray River, and then they had these people called Australians wearing broad shorts and surfboards under their arms. I said, wow. So my mother is asking me if I would like to go on a camping trip. <laughs> yeah, so I said, sure. Um, but my mother did say that, you know, that would mean going to a refugee camp for a while. And if you tell anyone that you're escaping Hungary and the Soviet Union, you would end up in the gulags. I said, all right, so keep it a secret. <laughs> and um, we heard stories from David around secrets, so I told my father a lie. And I told my father, I'll see him in three days. We're just going on a holiday, escaping Hungary, staying in a refugee camp, living there for 12 months. And then finally, Australia accepted us as political migrants, which was great. But, you know, when I said, um, when I uh, answered my mother's question on, would you like to go to Australia? I thought, of course, I would like to ask, like, we've been told in Hungary, under the communist regime, Australia is a stupid, bastion country. Um, 
So I thought, well, you know, I could be a chess player, maybe I could be Australian chess champion. Maybe I could be a scientist. I've got a few things to teach those Australians, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> like living in huts and, you know, broad shorts. So ended up arriving in Australia in 1988 on Queen's birthday. Three day long weekend in 1988, which is the bicentennial anniversary of Australia. So we land in Australia. This car takes us to a hostel, six lane highway with no cars, tall buildings with no people. Like seriously, like why do Australians build six, way, six lane highways and tall buildings with no people? But any one of you who lived in South Australia during that time, you would understand that during public holidays, South Australia just shut down and there was no one around. And three days later, all the people appeared. <laughs> but of course, it was rather strange. So either way, I hanged out in South Australia, moved to Townsville, and that's where I had my first ever high school education after 18 months, because the refugee campus were great. Like refugee camps, you know, no school, played ping pong, played chess, played cards, hitchhiked, did all those great things. But after all, in Australia, I had to go to school. And my first ever class was a French class at Townsville State High School. So 18 months, no school, rock up to school, line up, Teacher signals, sit down, I sit down, and the teacher realized that this is the odd kid out of the town, so pointing to me. So she spoke so kindly, she spoke like blah, 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 in French. So I said in my best English, I do not understand. And she looked at me and smiled, like, no worries, mate. We'll repeat that in English. And she goes, blah, 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 eh? In English. <laughs> so I said, I do not understand A. <laughs> um, so the whole class burst into laughter, and I had no choice but to laugh as well to realize that I'm learning French, English, and I speak neither of those languages. Either way, got through that. I went to one of the best high schools in Townsville. Like, we had the highest academic record. We had the highest pregnancy rate. We had the highest drug abuse rate. And, you know, sex is a half a line and the foot football pitch was normal. So I always tried to go on the periphery. Um, got, got into medical school in one way or another. And, 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 you know, one of my first jobs was being a cleaner. And it was great. I used to work as a cleaner from 5 a.m. to 8 a.m. to clean my university, libraries, and toilets. And um, after 12 months, I got offered a full-time position. And I was so proud of my first time full-time Australian job as a toilet cleaner. <laughs> but I kind of told the employer that maybe I had other plans in mind. So I ended up getting a scholarship um, through med school, which meant I got paid through my last three years of med school. And in return, I had to do three years in a bush service. And I thought, yeah, you know, that's pretty easy. Like, I'm not being chucked into a gulag in the Soviet Union. <laughs> All I have to do is three years in a bush. <laughs> like, you know, it's pretty straightforward. So, you know, so my first post, straight after finishing med school, I know some of you guys are doctors. So my first post out of med school was, I was given this job position as the medical superintendent of Dumuji Hospital. 
And those of you who don't know Dumuji, it's just east of Borula, just across the border. So it's like just east of the Northern Territory. And it was awesome. I had met super pays, so I got paid a lot. They gave me a four-wheel drive to drive. It wasn't just a four-wheel drive. It was a brand new four-wheel drive straight out of the factory. It only had like 10 Ks on the entire car. So like first two nights, I was on call. Third night, third night I was on off duty. And um, I was living in a dry community. So, you know, the thing I did is the first night off duty is driving to the pub. So I was driving to the pub with this brand new car, but I didn't get any instructions from Hungary on how to drive a four-wheel drive. <laughs> so it's not surprising I rode the car off <laughs> with only 40 kilometers on the odometer. <laughs> yeah, so, so, you know, like this is a little bit of indigenous humor because then I was the local medical superintendent and uh, Blackfellas kind of told me, the Aboriginal people said, you know, uh, hi, new doctor, great. You rode your four-wheel drive, you rode it off on the way to the pub. <laughs> so that's kind of funny. But they pointed out that I was on the wrong road to the pub and I would never made it. <laughs> so I had a great reputation in the local community. And, but that's not the only thing they didn't teach us in medical school, right? They obviously didn't teach us that. But they also didn't teach me like about diseases like leprosy and rheumatic heart disease and to how to dialyze patients. Like, you know, one of my key, key, key duties were, were to dialyze patients on ECGs, like even a blood test or things like that. Um, so it was a pretty kind of um, rapid introduction. And um, one patient who, you know, there was a lot of tragic stories, a lot of death, a lot of young people dying and suiciding, a lot of people dying from rheumatic heart disease. But one of the things that kind of changed my life was this 14-year-old girl who was raped, and delivered her baby, Manizer, was diagnosed with rheumatic heart disease, a disease of poverty and social disadvantage, returned to Dumuji community, and because she was a child who had a child, she was no longer a child. So I'm going to repeat that. She's a child who's no longer considered as a child because she already had a child. So this 14-year-old girl was competing for open-heart surgery with 98-year-olds in Queensland. So she finally made it to the surgical list in Queensland, but then she needed dental fitness. And, you know, before you have cardiac surgery, you need to make sure your teeth are all good. And, you know, we got the greatest health system in Australia, like one of the best in the entire world, and we seriously learned that during this COVID-19 outbreak. So in these best health, health systems, people in remote communities just fall through the gaps because this kid couldn't get open-heart surgery because there was no dentist in Dumuji, there was no dentist in Manizer, and the cardiac surgical people in the big smokes wouldn't take her. So she died. She died with a baby feeding on her breast with an ax next to her to protect herself against intruders. And that's when I thought to myself, I wanted to be a pediatric cardiologist. Moved to Melbourne, did three years, passed my exams, did the hardcore yards, and applied for a job to be a pediatric cardiologist so that no other young person would have to die in remote Australia from this disease of poverty. And, you know...
So the answer from Melbourne was like, you know, you know, like what the fuck? We've got 25 pediatric cardiologists in the entire country. What do you want to do back up north? Uh, so, sorry, mate, we don't have a job for you. I said, that's all cool, that's cool. You don't have a job for me, that's all right. Um, just let me know when you do have a job for me because I know that there's 25 pediatric cardiologists in the country and I would like to be the 26. <laughs> so I put my name on the waiting list and I was determined that that's the only thing I wanted to do in my life is to bring justice to Indigenous communities. So there was no job, I quit medicine and I started playing poker. <laughs> In a crank casino, high stakes, 60 hours a week, I made more money than ever before. I learned about statistics and probability and 1% mortality is far too high because when, you, when you're all in and you've got 99.9 chance of winning and you lose it all, then you lost it all. So when you're talking about kids having open heart surgery and 99% chance of all going well, well, you've still got that 1%. And that 1% is real. It's real when it's your own money and it's real when it's your own child. So either way, after six months of poker, I did get a call, did get a job, did finish my training. And then you kind of thought, okay, so I'm gonna go to the place that needs me most, like the Northern Territory. And arrived to Darwin and said, oh, yeah, you know, we don't have a job for you. Like, we don't have heart disease in the Northern Territory, do we? <laughs> like, not really. <laughs> it, or, it, I mean, it, you know, we do have heart disease, but only affects the disadvantaged populations, and do we really care about that? And so initially I started with a point one position, it's like four hours a week. Um, but work hard, now I've got a full-time job, and our team is working very hard to make sure that people in the Northern Territory not only have the best pediatric cardiac um, access to consultation and surgery, but we would like to pride ourselves as the best in Australia and potentially best in the world. Wow, from communist Hungary to saving lives in the hot and dusty outback via a few chessboards here and there. Bo first shared her story at a spun event in 2020 where the theme was heart. The story producer behind Bo's story was Laurie Uden with sound editing and production by Gaya Osborne. Sam Carmody is the talent behind the music on our podcast and Spun Stories is one of the projects that come out of the Creative Production House Story Projects. We receive funding support for our podcast from Darwin International Airport. The Larrakia people are the traditional custodians of the land on which we gather to connect through story here in the Top End. We're grateful to and acknowledge their contribution to the story-rich place we get to call home. My name's Jess Ong. Thanks for listening. <laughs>